Hi, and welcome to the Christmas edition of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. And today, as is our Christmas tradition, we're digging into a Christmas short story. This one was first published on the 23rd of December, 1949, and it's called The Present in the Post. And it's by a solicitor whose pen name was Cyril Hare. His chambers were in Hare Court, and he lived in Cyril Mansions in Battersea. And this was the pen name of Alfred Alexander Gordon Clark. His work is hard to come by now, but you should find some of it on archive.org. And so, to today's story. At Christmas time, we gladly greet you, old familiar face. At Christmas time, we hope to meet the old familiar place. Five hundred loving greetings, dear, from you to me, to welcome the glad new year, look to see. Hilda Trent turned the Christmas card over in her carefully manicured fingers as she read the idiotic lines aloud. Did you hear anything so palsied? she asked her husband. I wonder who on earth they get to write this stuff. Timothy, do you know anybody called Leech? Leech? Yes, that's what it says. From your old Leech. Must be a friend of yours. The only Leech I ever knew spelt her name with an A. This one has two E's. She looked at the envelope. Yes, it was addressed to you. Who is the old leech? She flicked the card across the breakfast table. Timothy stared hard at the rhyme and the scrawled message beneath it. I haven't the least idea, he said slowly. As he spoke, he was taking in, with a sense of cold misery, the fact that the printed message on the card had been neatly altered by hand. The word five was in ink. The original poet, no doubt, had been content with a hundred loving greetings. Put it on the mantelpiece with the others, said his wife. There's a nice paunchy robin on the outside. Damn it, no. In a sudden access of rage, he tore the card in two and flung the pieces in the fire. It was silly of him, he reflected as he travelled up to the city half an hour later to break out in that way in front of Hilda but she would just put it down to the nervous strain about which she was always pestering him to take medical advice. Not for all the gold in the Bank of England could he have stood the sight of that damnable jingle on his dining room mantelpiece, the insolence of it, the cool, calculated devilry. All the way to London, the train wheels beat out a maddening rhythm. At Christmas time, we gladly greet. And he had thought the last payment had seen the end of it. Had he returned from James's funeral triumphant in the certain belief that he had attended the funeral and the burial of the bloodsucker who called himself Leech. But he was wrong, it seemed. Five hundred loving greetings, dear. Five hundred. Last year, it had been three. And that had been bad enough. It meant selling out some holdings at an awkward moment. And now, 500, with the market in its present state. How in the name of all that was horrible was he going to raise the money? He would raise it, of course. He 
would have to. The sickening, familiar routine would have to be gone through again. The cash and the treasury notes would be packed in an unobtrusive parcel and left in the cloakroom at Waterloo. Next day, he would park his car as usual in the railway yard at his local station behind a windscreen wiper. The old familiar place would be tucked the cloakroom ticket. When he came down again from work in the evening, the ticket would be gone, and that would be that. Till next time. It was the way that the leech preferred it, and he had no choice but to comply. The one thing that Trent knew about the identity of his blackmailer was that he, or could it be a she, was a member of his family. His family. Thank heaven, they were no true kindred of his. So far as he knew, he had no blood relation alive. But his family, they had been ever since, when he was a tiny, ailing boy. His father had married the gentle, ineffective Mary Grigson, with her long trail of soft, useless children. And when the influenza epidemic of 1919 carried off John Trent, he had been left to be brought up as one of that clinging, grasping clan. He had got on in the world, made money, married money, but he had never got away from the Grigsons, save for his stepmother, to whom he grudgingly acknowledged that he owed his star in life, how he loathed them all. But his family, they remained expected to be treated with brotherly affection, demanding his presence at family reunions, especially Christmas time. At Christmas time, we hope to meet. He put down his paper unread and stared forlornly out of the carriage window. It was at Christmas time, four years before, that the whole thing started at his stepmother's. Christmas Eve party, just such a boring family function as the one he would have to attend in a few days' time. There had been some silly games to amuse the children, blind man's buff and musical chairs, and in the course of them, his wallet must have slipped from his pocket. He discovered the loss next morning, went round to the house and retrieved it, but when it came into his hands again, there was one item missing from its content. Just one. A letter, quite short and explicit, signed in a name that about then had become fairly notorious in connections with an unsavoury inquiry into certain large-scale dealings in government securities. How he could have been a fool enough to keep it a moment longer than was necessary it was no good going back on that. And when the messages from the leech had begun, leech had the letter. Leech considered it his duty to send it to the principal of Trent's firm, who was also Trent's father-in-law. But meanwhile, leech was a trifle short of money and for a small consideration. And so it begun. And so, year in, and year out, it had gone on. He had been so sure that it was James, that seedy, 
unsuccessful stock jobber with his gambling debts and his inordinate thirst for whisky had seemed the very stuff of which blackmailers are made. But he had got rid of James last February, and here was Leech again, hungrier than ever. Trent shifted uneasily in his seat. Got rid of him was hardly the right way to put it. One must be fair to oneself. He had merely assisted James to get rid of his worthless self. He had done no more than asked James to dinner at his club, filled him up with whisky and left him to drive home on a foggy night with the roads treacherous with frost. There had been an unfortunate incident on the Kingston Bypass and that was the end of James and, incidentally, of two perfect strangers who had happened to be on the road at the same time. Forget it. The point was that the dinner and the whisky had been a dead loss. He would not make the same mistake again. This Christmas Eve, he intended to make sure he knew who his persecutor was. Once he knew, there'd been no half-measures. Revelation came to him midway through Mrs John Trent's party. At the very moment, in fact, when the presents were being distributed from the Christmas tree, when the room was bathed in the soft radiance of coloured candles, and noisy with the oohs and ahs of excited children, and with the rustle of hastily unfolded paper parcels. It was so simple, and so unexpected, that he could have laughed aloud. Appropriately enough, it was his own contribution to the party that was responsible. For some time past, it had been his unwritten duty, as the prosperous member of the family, to present his stepmother with some delicacy to help out the straitened resources of her house in providing a feast worthy of the occasion. This year, his gift had taken the form of half a dozen bottles of champagne part of a consignment which he suspected of being corked. That champagne, acting on the head, unused to anything stronger than lemonade, was enough to loosen Bessie's tongue for one fatal instant. Bessie, of all people, faded, spinsterish Bessie. Bessie, with her woolwork and her charities. Bessie, with her large, stupid, appealing eyes and her air of frustration that put you in mind of a bud frosted just before it would come into flower. And yet, when you think of it, it was natural enough, probably, of all the Grigson tribe, he disliked her the most. He felt for her all the loathing one must naturally feel for a person one has treated badly. And he He had been simple enough to believe she did not resent it. She was just his own age, and from the moment he had been introduced into the family, had constituted herself as his protector against the unkindness of his elder stepbrother. She had been, in her revoltingly sentimental phrase, his own special sister. As they grew up, the roles were reversed and she became his prodigy, the admiring spectator of his early struggles. Then, it had been pretty much clear that she, 
and everyone else expected him to marry her. He had considered the idea quite seriously for some time. She was pretty enough in those days, and, as the phrase went, worshipped the ground he trod on. But he had the good sense to see in time that he must look elsewhere if he wanted to make his way in the world. His engagement to Hilda had been a blow to Bessie, her old maidish look and her absorption in good works dated from then. She had been sweetly forgiving to all appearances. Now, as he stood there under the mistletoe, with a ridiculous paper cap on his head, he marvelled how he could have been so easily deceived, as though, after all, anyone could have written that card but a woman. Bessie was smiling at him, still smiling, with the confidential air of the mildly tipsy, her upturned shiny nose glowing pink in the candlelight. She had assumed a slightly puzzled expression, as though trying to recollect what she had said. Timothy smiled back and raised his glass at her. He was stone-cold sober, and he could remind her of any words when the occasion rose. My present for you, Timothy, is in the post. You'll get it tomorrow, I expect. I thought you'd like a change from those horrid Christmas cards. And the words had been accompanied with an unmistakable wink. Uncle Timothy! One of James's bouncing girls jumped up at him and gave him a smacking kiss. He put her down with a grin and tickled her ribs as he did so. He suddenly felt light-hearted and on good terms with the world, one woman accepted. He moved away from the mistletoe and strolled around the room, exchanging pleasantries with all the family. He could look at them now in the face without a qualm, clink glasses with Roger, the prematurely aged, overworked GP. No need to worry now whether his money was going in that direction. He slapped Peter on the back and endured patiently five minutes confidential chat on the difficulties of the motor car business these days. To Marjorie, James's widow looking wan and ever so brave, in her made-over black frock, he spoke just the right amount of words of blended sympathy and cheer. He even found in his pocket some half-crowns for his great hulking step-nephews. Then he was standing by his stepmother near the fireplace, whence she presided quietly over the noisy, cheerful scene, beaming gentle good nature from her faded blue eyes. A delightful evening, he said, and meant it. Thanks to you, Timothy. In great part, she replied, you've always been so good to us. Wonderful what a little doubtful champagne would do. He would have given a lot to see her face if he was to say, I suppose you're not aware that your youngest daughter, who's now pulling a cracker with that ugly little boy of Peter's, is blackmailing me, and I shortly intend to stop her mouth for good. He turned away. What a gang they all were. What a shabby, out-at-elbows gang. Not a decently cut suit or well-turned-out woman amongst this lot. He had imagined that all his money had been gone on to support some of them. Why, 
They all simply reeked of honest poverty. She could see it now. Bessie explained everything. It was typical of her twisted mind to wring cash from him by threats and give it all away in charities. You've always been so good to us. Come to think of it, his stepmother's worth the whole of the rest put together. She must be hard put to it, keeping up father's old house, with precious little coming in from her own children. Perhaps one day, when his money was really his own again, he might see his way to do a little something for her. But there was a lot to do before he could indulge in extravagant fancies like that. Hilda was coming across the room towards him. Her elegance made an agreeable contrast to the get-up of the Grigson woman. She looked tired and rather bored, which was not unusual for her at parties at this house. Timothy, she murmured, can't we get out of here? My head feels like a ton of bricks, and I've going to be fit for anything tomorrow morning. Timothy cut her short. You go home straight away, darling, he said. I can see it's high time you were in bed. Take the car. I can walk. It's a fine evening. And don't wait up for me. You're not coming? I thought you said. No, I have to stay and see the party through. There's a little matter of family business I better dispose of whilst I have the chance. Hilda looked at him in slightly amused surprise. Well, if you feel that way, she said. You seem to be very devoted to your family all of a sudden. You better keep an eye on Bessie while you're going about it. She's had about as much as she can carry. Hilda was right. Bessie was decidedly merry, and Timothy continued to keep an eye on her, thanks to his attentions by the end of the evening, when Christmas Day had been seen in, and the guests were fumbling for their rats. She had reached the stage where she could barely stand. Another glass, thought Timothy, from the depth of experience, and she'll pass right out. I'll give you a lift home, Bessie, said Roger, looking at her with a professional eye. We can just about squeeze you in. Oh, nonsense, Roger, Bessie giggled. I can manage perfectly well, as if I couldn't walk as far as the end of the drive. I'll look after her, said Timothy heartily. I'm walking myself and we could guide each other's wandering footsteps home. Where's your coat, Bessie? Are you sure you've got all your precious presents? He prolonged his leave-taking until all the rest had gone, and then helped Bessie into her worn fur coat and stepped out of the house, supporting her with an affectionate right arm. It was all going to be too deliciously simple. Bessie lived in the lodge of the old house. She preferred to be independent, and the arrangement suited everyone, especially since James, after his reverses on the turf, had brought his family to live with his mother to save expense. It suited Timothy admirably now. Tenderly, he escorted her to the end of the drive. Tenderly, he assisted her to insert her latch key in the door. Tenderly, he supported her into the little sitting room that gave out of the hall. There, Bessie considerably saved him an enormous amount of trouble and possibly unpleasant scene. As he put her down on the sofa, 
She finally succumbed to the champagne. Her eyes closed. Her mouth opened. And she lay like a log where he'd placed her. Timothy was genuinely relieved. He was prepared to go to any lengths to rid himself from the menace of blackmail. But if he could lay his hands on that damning letter without physical violence, he would be well satisfied. It would be open to him to take it out of Bessie in other ways later on. He looked quickly around the room. He knew its contents by heart. It had hardly changed at all since the day when Bessie first furnished her own room when she left school. The same old battered desk stood in the corner, where, from the earliest days, she kept her treasures. He flung it open, and a flood of bills, receipts, charitable appeals, and yet more charitable appeals came cascading out, one after another. He went through the drawers with ever-increasing urgency, still failed to find what he sought. Finally, he came across a small inner drawer which resisted his attempts to open it. He tugged at it in vain and then seized the poker from the fireplace and burst the flimsy lock by main force. He dragged the drawer from its place and settled himself to examine the contents. It was crammed as full as it could hold with papers. At the very top was a programme of a May week ball for his last year at Cambridge. There were snapshot, press cuttings, an account of his own wedding amongst them. And for the rest, piles of letters, all in his handwriting. The wretched woman seemed to have hoarded every scrap he had ever written to her. As he turned them over, some of the phrases he had used in them floated into his mind and he became to apprehend for the first time what a depth of resentment must have been when he threw her over. But where the devil did she keep the only letter that mattered? As he straightened himself from the desk, he heard close behind a hideous choking sound. He spun around quickly. Bessie was standing behind him, her face a mask of horror. Her mouth was wide open in dismay. She drew a long shuddering breath. In another moment, she was going to scream at the top of her voice. Timothy's pent-up fury could be contained no longer. With all his force, he drove his fist into that gaping, foolish face. Bessie went down as though she'd been shot, and her head struck the leg of the table with a crack of a dry stick being broken in two. She did not move again. Although it was quiet enough in the room after that, he never heard his stepmother come in. Perhaps it was the sound of his own pulses drumming in his ears that had deafened him. He did not know how long she'd been there. Certainly it was long enough for her to take in everything that was there to be seen, for her voice, when she spoke, was perfectly under control. You have killed Bessie, she said. It was a calm statement of fact rather than an accusation. He nodded, speechless. But you have not found the letter. He shook his head. Didn't you understand what she told you this evening? The letter is in the post. It was our Christmas present to you. 
poor, simple, loving Bessie. He stared at her, aghast. It was only just now that I found it was missing from my jewel case, she went on, still in the same flat, quiet voice. I don't know how she found out about it, but love, even a crazy love like hers, gives people a strange insight sometimes. He licked his dry lip. Then you were the leech, he faltered. Of course. Who else? How otherwise do you think I could have kept the house open and my children out of debts on my income? No, Timothy. Don't come any nearer. You're not going to commit two murders tonight. I don't think you've got the nerve to in any case. But to be on the safe side, I brought the little pistol your father gave me when he came out of the army in 1918. Sit down. He found himself crouching on the sofa, looking helplessly up to her pitiless old face. The body that had been Bessie lay between them. Bessie's heart was very weak, she said reflectively. Roger had been worried about it for some time. If I have a word with him, I dare say he will find his way to issue a death certificate. It will, of course, be a little expensive. Shall we say, a thousand pounds this year, instead of five hundred? You would prefer that, Timothy, I dare say, to the alternative. Once more, Timothy nodded in silence. Very well, I shall speak to Roger in the morning, after you have returned to me Bessie's Christmas present. I shall require that for future use. You can go now, Timothy. The end. And to all my listeners, have a lovely Christmas, New Year, and I'll be back in 2024 with many more episodes. Till then, bye bye.